Welcome to How to Live Podcast with Dr. Chip Dodd, a series to help us see who we are made to be so we can do what we are made to do. Hello, uh, this is Dr. Chip Dodd. Welcome to the How to Live Podcast Uncut. I call it uncut because, well, frankly, you can tell obviously that there uh, is not a lot of editing that has occurred for these podcasts. Reason is, one, I want to get the material out to you. Number two is it um, the expense of doing it um, with perfection is uh, prohibitive in my part. So I want to make sure you have this material. So today I want to talk to you about the value of words the uh, value of love and the value of hope and how we need each other and how we're made to be connected through hope, love, and words. And many people, even now, as you listen to this, uh, you have spent some time in your life uh, weighed down by words that were spoken, words that are negative, have a half-life that that can be shelved for a long, long time, and words that are beautiful and positive and good and helpful and loving have also a shelf life that can arouse us to courage, arouse us to um, risk, arouse us to a sense of security and confidence, just like words can tear us apart. You know the old phrase that sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me is a lie. That words can devastate us to the core of our being, even worse than a stab wound or a fist in the face. The fist in the face, the bruise will heal, the bones will can be repaired. A stab wound can, if it doesn't kill us, can be sewn up and healed. But words that go into the heart can stay there for um, decades because we don't have a hand that can reach them and we don't have a medical instrument that can heal them. It only can be healed through facing, feeling, and dealing with uh, the words and then getting them out of us um, Toward back, sent back towards the people who gave them to us, or to treasure them and hold on to them and live live them in gratitude. So I wanted to speak today about um, a story, and here's the story. And in 2001, I um, published a book. Or a book uh, in 2001, the Voice of the Heart was published, and that book uh, over a period of a decade sort of simmered inside of me. And uh, in the introduction of the book, uh, I, I, I want to read that today and then speak to it about the person who in many ways taught me the value of words, uh, taught me the value of love and the value of hope, even though I still I already believed in them and already lived on them and already been given words back that were valuable to me. And I was uh, trusting and believing in love. And and honestly, I have to put it this way, got hope back in 1989 and never lost it again. But let me read the introduction to The Voice of the Heart. I want to tell you a story from 1991. And then I want to tell you how this story ends. The introduction to the book, The Voice of the Heart, which is about the eight feelings that we've been given uh, that allow us to live fully in a tragic place. None of the feelings that we've been given are negative. They're all tools that we need to learn how to use to give us the gifts of being able to live fully, love deeply, 
and lead well a life worth honoring um, in a place that's tragic. So uh, by us learning them to feel them, to use them, to deal with them, and they will bring us the healing we're made to have that allow us to connect fully and deeply with other people and with God. So here's the introduction. Uh, the first time I saw David, I was speaking to a group of patients at a treatment center in a suburban Dallas hospital. I saw David when he came through the lecture room for a little while, stood for a couple of minutes, and then left. Looking at him, I felt deep sadness because it was obvious that he had gone beyond his own ability to endure. The expression on his face looked like sheer pain plastered into a smile. I didn't see him again until three weeks later when I got a phone call from a psychiatric nurse requesting that I begin seeing David as an individual patient at the treatment center. It turned out that between the lecture and the phone call, David had been allowed to go home from the inpatient site on a temporary leave. Once at home, David fed his horses, then, in desperation and numbness over his marriage, his internal pain, and his life, he hanged himself in his barn. Seconds later, David's wife came out to the barn and found him hanging. She shoved him out of the noose and called the paramedics. David was already dead. When the EMTs arrived, they resuscitated him and rushed him to a nearby hospital. His wife came into the hospital waving a living will, saying, no life support systems. David's parents arrived about the same time, and after some heated discussion between the doctors, his wife, and his par parents, David was moved to an intensive care unit and put on life support. We hope that you are benefiting from this podcast. If you are interested in more material from Dr. Dodd, please go to chipdodd.com or Sage Hill Podcasts. Thank you for listening. We now return to the rest of the podcast. David was moved to the intensive care unit and put on life support. When he was barely physically able, David's parents transferred him from the hospital with doctor's permission and took him back to the treatment center's inpatient unit. That is where I first met David face to face. <clears throat> a nurse who was familiar with my work and beliefs recommended that I see him. She hoped that I could help in what seemed like a hopeless situation. David was lying in his bed, motionless with the same frozen smile on his face. The room was dark except for sunlight spilling through the slits in the half-closed blinds. David was still fragile after being transferred from the intensive care unit. When he breathed, he groaned with physical and emotional pain, the pain of a wounded body and a broken heart. I quietly sat down beside him, fearful. I wondered, what, I wondered to God what I was doing there. After some time, I told him my name. <clears throat> Then I said, David, you've hit bottom. As it turns out, when you hit, you fell through a skylight and kept dropping. Beside me lay a man who had cried so deeply that he had no more tears. All he could do was lie there and groan between breaths. I remember telling him, there is no farther to fall. You're in the bottom of the pit. I promised him that there was a ladder that reached from where he lay in the darkness all the way back to the surface of life. I told him that when he was ready to take a step, I would take a step. When he was ready to walk, I would walk. When he was ready to run, I would run. 
I also told him that any time he needed to come back to the bottom of the pit and sit in hopelessness or rest in grief, that I would watch over him. Most often, most important, I promised him that he would quit before I would quit because I wasn't going to quit. Through a long process, David moved from being bedridden to sitting up, to using a wheelchair, to limping down the hall, then to walking freely. Although David's wounded body was healing, his heart remained broken. His shame, despair, and hopelessness continued to drive him toward death as the solution to his pain. In time, these experiences slowly translated into grief, loneliness, anger, and a healthy hunger for the pain to end. David walked through great emotional and spiritual pain. We worked exclusively through the issues of the heart, the storehouse of the self. Probably most painful for him was his dare to hope again with his heart's desire and longings to need again and to feel again. In using his heart, David courageously climbed back to the surface of life. David's parents were involved in the process, as was one of his old childhood friends. They came to the hospital as often as they could, and David and his family grew closer than they had ever been. About a year after our work began, and months after leaving the hospital, David returned to his old job as an excavator. Within a few months, he lost his father to a massive coronary. Fortunately, each man had spoken many words of love and truth to the other before his father's death. David had chosen to live fully from his heart before his father died, and he still does so. Today, I get an occasional card from David. Not only has he resumed his work, but he also returns to the hospital from time to time to share the story of his recovery from death to life, from resignation to acceptance, and from apathy to love. So that's the conclusion of the introduction and was written in 2000, really, really 1999, 2000. The book was published in 2001 called The Voice of the Heart. And that book um, has honestly been all over the world. And here we are 20 years later, and that book, The Voice of the Heart and the Eight Feelings, have continued to um, impact people, individuals, families, couples, relationships, all over the world. And it really is amazing that 20 years later, this book without really any marketing, no distribution, no strong distribution channels is still being picked up, read and valued and utilized everywhere. But but I, I say that not to boast in what's happening, but to say that it's meeting a hunger. And so I, I wanted to acknowledge David and what David had done for me and what I had done for David, and what uh, that uh, interaction and relationship created that ended up instigating uh, the need for me to write this book. The story I tell about David happened in 1991. And the backstory, more to the story, is that that childhood friend that David ended up uh, meeting was uh, a little girl that he had grown up with. Uh, in fact, when he was seven and she was six, they were walking along the railroad track in a small Texas town, and he put a penny on the railroad, uh, the railroad um, uh, track, and the rail, one of the rails, and they stepped back. When a train came, it ran over the penny and squashed it. And she had saved that penny from the time of, of that day all the way until she actually brought it in her purse to the hospital to visit when, when she came with his parents. And uh, he and she had promised lifelong love to each other as children. 
And then time uh, changed. They changed. Uh, life went on. He ended up marrying someone that uh, he really didn't love. And, and, and as it turns out, she did not love him. She was the one screaming living will. And as soon as he got better, she left him. And I'm not condemning, blaming anyone. I understand the circumstances. I understand how that can happen. Um, and David had also gone home to um, um, uh, shoot himself and, and couldn't find the bullets and decided to hang himself. Then the hospital got all crazy with liability because they let him let him go on a therapeutic leave when he really wasn't ready. And he had a plan to do what he did. Amazingly, he was resuscitated. A nurse at the hospital knew of the work that I was doing in Dallas and knew like of my uh, faith and uh, my belief and and what I was doing in the counseling world. And and just she's the one that asked me to come and, and, and see David to see if there's anything that could be done. And I I did not know really what to do. I just knew that I walked in that room and sat down and took a risk and made a statement that I didn't know was even in me uh, that turned into what, what we call the Badlands. And I started a treatment center in 1996 called the Center for Professional Excellence. And the number of times that, that I, from 1996 until 2017, and including in the book in 2001, I, I would tell these physicians mainly who came to treatment for alcoholism and drug addiction or depression, anxiety, or other professionals, I would say that, you know, you're the captain of the cavalry. You've never been able to make it across this, this set of badlands into your future, into fulfilling your mission in life. And you need help. And I won't go into the whole story, but basically what I would tell them, you're the captain of the cavalry. I'm just a guide. I'm just this fellow you found on the edge of the badlands sitting beside his house um, in what shade he could find, waiting. And it turns out that that's been sort of a lot of ways my assignment in life is wait and, and guide. Uh, so I would tell these, these guys, you're in control, but I'm the one that knows the way. And I would say, when you're ready to walk, we'll walk. When you're ready to run, we'll run. When it's time for you to go into the bottom of the pit and grieve your guts out, I'll hold a ladder, promising you that there's a way up. I would say that when it's time for you to rest, when it's time for you to sleep, I will watch out over you uh, to make sure that you can rest, and I will watch out for you in terms of looking out at the outside world to make sure no harm comes to you, and you'll be able to do something you haven't done in years. Shut both eyes, not live in hypervigilance and anxiety and the tension that you know that there is someone watching. Like almost like in To Kill a Mockingbird, when when uh, Scout uh, says about Atticus, who was watching over Jim with the broken arm, is that Atticus would sit with Jim all night long, and in the morning when Jim awakened, Atticus would be there. And that's what we hunger for and look for. That's what we all need. And uh, someone had done it for me, so I started offering it to others. But uh, and then I would say that you know I won't run ahead of you, I won't uh, push you, I won't stay behind you. Uh, but I will walk with you. And then if you will stay the course, you and I will come up over a, a, up a last ravine and crawl up to the top of a, uh, and stand on a plateau and look out over the great vast uh, prairie lands, the great uh, 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 world uh, that awaits you. And, um, and you, you, I will say, you, you're done. You made it. And, and you will say, is this it? And I will say, yeah. And you'd say, where do I go? And I say, the, the, the 
the missions in your saddlebags. And um, so this is goodbye. And I would say, yes, this is goodbye. But I will watch you run forward to wherever you're headed into the prairie grass until you disappear. And then once I can no longer see you, I will slide back down the dirt and go sit by my hut, my house, and wait in the shade until the next person comes along. So, but David, and that opportunity I had with David is what taught me to live what I said to him that day out of a deep intuition and out of a deep prayer, like, what do I do with what's happening here, God? And that's when I said to him, you know, you're as far down as you can go. And when you're ready to walk, I'll walk. And then we did that. The reason I tell you all of this is because David uh, died uh, April 7th, 2020, uh, 29 years after that day I met him in the hospital. Not only did he uh, drop a card to me every once in a while, he continued to speak with me on occasion and keep up with him. I ended up seeing him a few times when from the state he lived in, and I, I had moved to Tennessee by then. Um, I kept up with him in terms of he was a, a, a friend to many. He was uh, a, a, a friend to animals. He was an outdoorsman. And uh, that little seven-year-old, and that, uh, that, that little six-year-old that when he was seven, put the penny on the railroad track he married. They had daughters, and they had a pretty extraordinary life. They, David never did run from what happened to him, but continued to speak about what had happened to him, that he had gone from death to life and from hopelessness to hope. And he continued to uh, tell the story uh, about his life uh, and about that uh, even no matter how terrible and tough and difficult things get, to hang on and, and cry out and maybe even a rescue will come. So I wanted to do this podcast today to honor David. Um, I wrote about him in 2001 when the book came out. I was talking about what he had taught me uh, in some ways and what I had done with him in 1991. And I remember that um, I walked with him and he walked. Uh, when it was time for him to run, he ran. And I also told him that he'd quit before I'd quit because I wouldn't quit. And that man never quit. Um, and neither did I. So today I wanted to just share with you that words matter that love matters, that hope matters. I'm not talking about the codependent kind in which we fix people. I'm not talking about going beyond human limitations. I'm not talking about making promises uh, uh, that won't be broken because, you know, we humans are going to be limited by what we want to do. The very things we want to do, we end up not being able to fully do. But even in this broken world where there is much darkness and despair. There are pin, pinpricks of light everywhere, especially when our words are spoken out of love and the hope that we speak them with is something we dare to have. So I wanted to honor David. 30 years ago, almost, he uh, was dead by happenstance, God incident. A nurse who knew me they're not the administration, said, what about calling this guy? And this guy, me, dared to go out to this hospital and see if there was something 
that I could offer. And at the moment when I had nothing to offer, I just spoke out of the depth of what had been done for me. Uh, uh, I just gave what I'd gotten. And it turned out that as that walk continued, not only did he live, but there was reconciliation with his dad. He wound up meeting his childhood sweetheart again. They married uh, and even at one point had a fishing camp in Louisiana, just an amazing couple, um, full of love and life. Uh, He was not overly educated, but he had deep depths of life's experience and the capacity to articulate them which says so much about what we're capable of giving. It's not about our education. It's about our courage and willingness to articulate what's happened in our lives, where we were, what's happened, and where we are now. Messages of hope and love, using words to do it. So as I close, I just wanted to honor David. April 7th, 2020, I received a message on April 9th, 2020, from his dear uh, wife and childhood friend, that he had passed away uh, from uh, pneumonia. And um, um, and he lived a good full life. So 1991, it got started with me and him. 2001, his story ended up being impetus for uh, me even writing the book, The Voice of the Heart, about the depth uh, and the meaning and the purpose and the power of using feelings as tools to live fully in a tragic place. So I wanted to make sure I honored the man who had blessed me and I had blessed him uh, uh, and with uh, acknowledging his death. Um, so as I close, I want us to know that words matter, hope matters, and love matters. And when we use words to speak the truth of love and lay hope out before us, we can do uh, a lot of forgiving and mercy giving and grace offering to each other as we fumble, mumble, and bumble through life, knowing that clumsy is as good as we're ever going to get. We're always going to be works in progress. But when we move uh, in love and hope um, in so many ways, pinpricks of light pierce darkness and life is given instead of life taken. So anyway, God bless everyone. And, um, God bless David and, and Margaret um, for, for what you've done for all of us, because in so many ways, this, this blue-collar fellow who loved animals, great sense of humor, who dared to live again, has ended up blessing people all over the world. And I just wanted to acknowledge what a blessing he has been. And his name will never be known to others, and I will keep it anonymous myself. But uh, isn't it something that a man with no name has affected lives positively all over the globe. And and I mean literally in Europe and the Far East and in America and in Canada and and, and, uh, South America uh, and Africa. So anyway, thank you, David, and bye-bye.